Hi, creeps and freaks. Creepies and freakies. I'm Michelle. And I'm Courtney. And we are in the nick of crime. We come to you weekly with true crime, some spook spooks, and a little bit of comedy. We focus on being a voice for victims. But we also like to rake the offenders through the coals. We can never really seem to take ourselves too seriously, but we do hope you'll join us. So keep it creepy and stay freaky. And we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Welcome back to the True Crime B&B, episode 40. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And Bailey's the bad guy this week. Yep. And today I decided to go on a more historical route because it's over 70 years old. So I figured we're not really stepping on too many toes here. Yeah, because we've been super heavy lately and sometimes we just need a little break. Yeah, so I thought that'd be nice. And I discovered a building called the Murder Mansion in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I was curious what that all about. Lord. So I looked into it and turns out there was a real life murder there and I kind of dug into that to see what the true story was and what was all fiction. I'm going to first start out with a man by the name of Harry Edward Kilgore who was originally born in Glasgow, Kentucky, which is about 45 minutes west of Bowling Green. Okay. He was born February 28th, 1923. And he ended up moving to Bowling Green in his 20s because he was majoring in physics at Western State College, which the main campus was in Bowling Green. Okay, that makes sense. While he was studying at this college, he met a younger woman who was 18 while he was 25, and her name was Ruth Ann McKinney. Was she studying physics too? No. I don't know if she actually went to college there or not. I think she just lived in Bowling Green. Okay. So he met Ruth and absolutely became smitten with her, and they started going out, not very seriously, but, you know, he got his hopes up. But soon after that, Ruth met another man who lived in Bowling Green by the name of Stonewall Martin, who was 51 at this point. Stonewall Martin? Yeah, it's quite a name. (laughs) So Stonewall, 51, while Ruth is 18... However, Stonewall is an eligible bachelor with a lot of money, no children, never married before. And Stonewall just happened to swoop in here, steal Ruth's affections, and asked her to marry him that same year, and she agreed. I suspect Ruth was more enamored of his money than she was of him. Yeah, yeah. With this all being said, the first man we talked about, 25-year-old Harry, is really pissed and quite bitter towards this marriage happening. Sure. So on June 23, 1948... Ruth and Stonewall married, and then they went off on their honeymoon to Arkansas. That's not very far. You'd think he's got all this money. Yeah, I'm sure Arkansas is great, but she's like, can we leave the tri-state area? Yeah, Florida maybe. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so they went off after June 23rd, 1948, on their honeymoon to Arkansas for the following week. While they were gone, June 30th, 1948, Harry Kilgore, early in the morning on June 30th, so basically the middle of the night, they said it was like 2 or 3 in the morning. He decided to borrow his sister's car, drive over to the property of the now murder mansion, and parked in a wheat field right in the back of it so his car could not be seen from the front. Okay. He then traveled on foot the rest of the way to the house and busted out the lock on the back door. It's kind of up in the air if he actually kicked it open or if he shot it open because he did have a pistol on him at this point and started entering the house. I wonder if he calculated the physical exertion <laughs> <Maybe. to> required. 
He's like, God, wear the steel-toed boots for this one. Uh, he's now through the back door. And I should now reveal, this is the home of a retired couple, Dr. Charles Martin and his wife, Martha Martin. Charles was 83, Martha was 71. Oh, so Stonewall still lived with his mom and dad? No, these are his parents, though. So, as you just put together, these are the parents of Stonewall Martin, the man who he is bitter towards for having married his sweetheart. Don't take it out on his parents. After breaking open the back door, Dr. Martin was awoken to the sound and entered into the foyer. And immediately, Harry started shooting at him. And he missed him once and got into the stairwell, it sounds like. And then he got him once in the neck. Harry, Harry, Harry. I know. Dr. Martin then ran away from the attacker. He has no idea who Harry is. Yeah. And goes back into his bedroom where Harry discovered that his wife was sleeping in the bed still and shot her once in the back of the head and then continued to shoot Dr. Charles twice more in the head. What the hell, Harry? So just, they never saw it coming. They They had no idea. They didn't do anything to you? Yeah, it's... A brutal attack. And then there were also other details I didn't even get into writing it down, but he beat the shit out of them with a flashlight that was metal and stuff like that after they were deceased. And it was just really brutal. Awful situation. Talk about misplaced fury. Mm -hmm. After this was said and done, Harry went ahead and fled back to his car in the wheat field, drove it back to his mother's house in Glasgow. And that's kind of where we left off for that evening. Okay. That was... A lot to... Unpack at once. A lot going on in that one night. Mm-hmm. The next morning, a painter who had been working for the Martins for the past month arrived at 7 a.m. because they were fixing up the place and saw that the lock was broken. So he just went ahead and entered and discovered their bodies. After the police came to investigate, they started asking around town, and everyone was like, you need to look into that Harry Kilgore guy. He's been super bitter, super just going off the rails ever since Ruth decided to marry this guy. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to head over to Glasgow and speak to Harry's mother. But they didn't even need to do that, because when they got there, Harry was still in the car, sitting in the driveway at 11 a.m. So he's been gone from this house since probably like 3.30, 4 o'clock-ish. And he's been sitting there for seven or eight hours. Just thinking in his car, because... I don't think he was prepared to do this as much as he thought he was. Yeah. Went a little off the rails. Yeah. So as they got him out of the car to talk to him a little bit, they also discovered a bunch of shell casings matching the same size that were used in the pistol and the wounds that were on the Martins. So they went ahead and arrested him and brought him back to Bowling Green where he confessed to the crime. When in trial, he finally stated that he'd had an accomplice, a 35-year-old man by the name of George Melvin Daggett, who was a music professor at the university that Harry had attended. What? And I only have to mention that because a lot of people, it's kind of 50-50 who thinks he actually was there and who thinks he had nothing to do with it, but... It seems a little dodgy. Yeah, just random. I don't know why this music professor would help out somebody 10 years younger than him. That's... Yeah, and... Got a bone to pick with some family. Unless he also had a bone to pick with the family. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Stonewall also stole the music professor's He was in love with Ruth, too. (laughs) Ruth had it going on, I guess. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. They ended up bringing him to trial, and they had not enough evidence, so he was dismissed and never brought up again. The music professor. music professor, yeah. So, just wanted to mention it. Harry also claimed that Ruth had married Stonewall Martin for his money, which is no shocker there. We all knew that. What's... What else are you telling us? (laughs) Yeah, I think that was a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, she married him for the money, but she was in on this with me. That was the plan is she was going to marry him. I was going to take out his parents so that he would inherit all the money. 
I would somehow take care of Stonewall, get him out of the picture, and then you get all the money and we'll get married later. I don't know how I it got... I guess that's not completely out of yeah, the realm of possibility. Totally plausible. I mean, people have done weirder things for fortunes, so... Yeah. So he tried to play that off and say, well, Ruth was in on this too, and Ruth denied it, of course. Go figure. Mm-hmm. And so, finally, Stonewall, after hearing these claims in the trial, decided to go ahead and adjust his will, just in case, <laughs> <laughs> saying that Ruth would still inherit everything as he passed... But if she ever remarried, she had to forfeit all of the fortune she had gained from him, including any assets like property, anything like that. And she agreed to it. All was well. They adjusted it. Nothing She's like, worked. that's fine. I'll just leave Harry out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's fine. <laughs> so Harry was finally sentenced on September 29th, 1949 to two life sentences. In 1957, while Harry was still in prison, Stonewall Martin did pass away. It sounded like he had a long-standing illness. It wasn't anything suspicious. Do you know how old he was when he died? Well, he was in 1948. I believe he was 53, so 1957. He was about 62. Okay. So that was 1957 when Stonewall died, and now Ruth is a widow. But very shortly after that, she met another man by the name of Sam Humphreys and decided to marry him. Uh-oh. And she completely said, that's fine. I'm forfeiting everything, including the 800 acres between Oklahoma. They had a bunch of acreage there that were they were using to drill oil that could bring even more money to them. Was there a secondary heir no. to the Martin property? Stonewall was an only child, and his two parents were elderly. And so where's so it forfeiting to? It went to a charity at okay. Stonewall. Yeah. She knew that. She was fine with it. Signed everything off. So now she's just a normal person who has normal funds. Okay. With this man, she had three sons. And then they eventually got divorced in the early 70s. This whole time, of course, Harry's still in prison. It all comes together, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> June 7th, 1965, Harry, who is now 42 years old, was released on parole for good behavior. So he served a total of 15 and a half years for the two murders. Well, that seems like a little tiny bit based on two life sentences. Yeah, but I think if you don't get the death penalty, then you're probably going to get out or you're going to go to a mental institution. <laughs> life sentence doesn't really mean much, you know. But per his release agreement, Harry had an older sister who now lived in Fort Pierce, Florida, and he was supposed to not even be in the tri-state area. He was supposed to go straight to Florida, live with her, and not come back. Is this the same sister whose car he borrowed to go mm -hmm. murder people? Yep, I sure bet is. she's just really excited about him coming. Well, Last she, time I saw you, you ran off in my car and killed people. It sounds like she knew what he was going to do, and oh, she really? just kind of was like, mm, I'm looking the other way. Oh, no. Yeah, so he went down to Florida and moved in with his sister in Fort Pierce. Back to Ruth now. It's the early 70s. She has three children and is divorced. Her youngest son, Eric, he's where we're getting most of the information because nobody in the story really talked ever about the murder and what happened. But Eric claims to remember that... Ruth was living in the early 70s between Kentucky and Florida, and he didn't know anything about the murder. He didn't know anything about her former husband, except that he was dead. And she became really good friends with Harry, and that it never became more than that, but he could tell that they were more, like, mentally, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they he, longed for one another. They longed for one another, and maybe behind some closed doors they had more of each other than <laughs> what was Maybe so. Apparent. And he even claimed that he lived for a brief period in a trailer park with Harry when he was five. May 10th, 1981, however, Harry Kilgore was riding his bike in front of his home in Florida and was struck in a hit and run. 
and died immediately at the scene. So at the age of 58 years old, he was pronounced dead. The men around... <laughs> I know, she's like a black widow. Yeah, she? every man that's around her gets dead. Well, her gets, second gets, husband's okay. As they say, unalived. Mm-hmm. If you're on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And then October 24th, 2017, Ruth Humphreys died after suffering from dementia for 20 years. So she wasn't really a lot of help in piecing the pictures together for the last 20 years of her life. When did she die? 2017, so not too long ago. Yeah, she was pretty up there. But then her son, Eric Humphreys, did do a 2019 interview. He stated, I'm still at 50-50 on her involvement. I don't know if we will ever get the full story because he's not entirely sure that Ruth wasn't involved and it wasn't the plan and then... Then she just readjusted. And Harry's in prison for life now and she's like, well, gotta move on. Yeah. Can't wait around. However, when her son was asked about their relationship, he stated he was always head over heels in love with her, and on if it was mutual, he responded, definitely. It's kind of a weird, bittersweet story about, I don't know how to feel about it. The only thing is that if Harry wasn't as enraged as the murder would look like he was, Mm -hmm. I don't think he would have been that enraged if it was a setup with Ruth, if she was in on it. Mm-hmm. Because he was taking out some real fury on these people. Yeah. Unless it was more of like he didn't intend or didn't anticipate them to wake up when he came through the door. But he beat them with a flashlight after, after they, were, they dead. were dead. Yeah. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I could make an argument either way. I don't think he was a good guy. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I mean, I just I could make an argument either that Ruth was involved or that she wasn't involved. So Mm -hmm. it's just a mystery. I guess we'll never know the answer to, but it's really an interesting story. There was a few quotes. There's so much to the story. I just gave you the bullet points here because there were so many he said, she said, and Mm. after they originally arrested Harry, he said, oh, she knew about it. She was in on the whole plan, but she might have thought I was joking. She might have thought this was just me being pissed off and drunk or whatever. Hmm. In other words, he may have confessed to her what he was going to do, but that doesn't necessarily mean she was signing off on it. Right. So it's totally possible she was still in love with him and just refused to be with him after what he'd done. I could see that being yeah, it. And maybe just, so. I still care about you, but you scare me. So <laughs> like, were there any other additional murders in this murder house? Or is it just that one murder, that one double murder that caused the house to be called that? Well, it is the murder house because of this particular event but there were a lot of suicides there was slavery that happened there was a whole bunch of things there's so much more that i found but if you do want to know more about it if you're into ghosty stuff there's a lot of spirit activity if you want to read up on that but bgdailynews.com has the three-part write-up where they interviewed the son separately again and also there's a book called the cemetery road murders the shocking true tale of kentucky's murder mansion and it's because the house is literally on a road called Cemetery Road, which is... I got that. Creepy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's a creepy looking house, though. Really? How creepy? How old was the house? Because you said there was slavery in this house. Was this house from pre-Civil War? Yeah, so it was pre-Civil War. It was like 1846 built or okay. something like that. There's just a lot to the story that I couldn't even get to or else it'd be an hour-long story. Yes, and that's not our format. No. That's all I got for you today. Okay. Took it on the lighter route. Well, I don't know if that's the lighter route. It's just an old story. It's an old story. Nobody alive was really there for it, so. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. My story is taking us to Hawaii. I don't think we've done any Hawaii stories. I don't think so, no. Nicholas Iwamoto is from the island of Oahu in Hawaii. 
He graduated in 2004 from Los Gatos High School, where he had been a star on the golf team. Over the next four years, he worked at the Los Gatos Athletic Club, took some college classes, and decided in 2008, at the age of 22, to join the Hawaii National Guard. Service to country is a very strong tradition in Nicholas's family, and he was super excited and committed to the next phase of his life. He had already started the process of enlistment, and the written exam and the physical exams were all behind him. Mm-hmm. So he was just waiting until his day. Rising above Honolulu on the Hawaiian island of Oahu is an extinct volcano known as Coco Crater, which has both stairs and a tramway that take people up to the summit for sightseeing. Most people can hike up the mountain in about 30 minutes or so, but it's generally considered to be a pretty challenging hike because the slope of the path is one foot of rise for every two feet of run. Mm -hmm. So for every foot horizontal, you're going up by six inches, and that's just a little bit less than an average stair at a public building. Okay, so it's really steep. It's relatively steep for a hike. Okay. Nicholas had decided to take on what amounts to about 1,048 railroad tie steps, taking him up 1,208 feet, as a challenge to himself to run up the Cocoa Head Trail just for his own edification. He wanted to see if he was ready for boot camp. Hmm. So on Super Bowl Sunday, which was February 1st, 2009, as the Pittsburgh Steelers were taking on the St. Louis Cardinals, Nicholas decided to take advantage of most people being at home watching the game, and he went out to fulfill his self-challenge. And he did. He jogged all the way up to the crest of the crater, and at the top, he stepped onto the steel platform at the summit. Just as he stepped onto this platform, he encountered 19-year-old Benjamin Davis, who had come up the mountain with a knife. Davis came towards him, shouting and talking nonsense, making unclear, senseless accusations. And then as soon as Nicholas actually saw the knife, it was being stabbed into his body. (laughs) Davis began attacking Nicholas, who was stabbed in his stomach, his liver, his diaphragm, and his left lung. Nicholas wasn't going to just stand there and die. So he tried to run. Mm -hmm. But since he had just run up the side of the crater, he was a little shaky, he was tired, his heart was racing, and he tripped. And he fell. And Davis jumped on top of him and began stabbing him again. Now he was stabbing him in his head and his throat. Nicholas could only try to shield his face from the weapon. Mm -hmm. So Nicholas took an opportunity that he saw and he grabbed Davis by the groin and squeezed as hard as he could, which did stop the stabbing temporarily, but then Davis got up and threw Nicholas 30 feet down the face of the crater where he landed on his head and then he rolled downhill another 70 feet. After this 100-foot fall, Nicholas was a crumpled ball of agony. He was unconscious for what he believed was about 30 minutes after he fell Mm -hmm. because he already had injuries. The fall had also broken his ankle, broken his neck, and fractured his skull. He had many broken ribs. He was just messed up. And he's stuck in like a crater? He's in a ravine. The crater is, it's an extinct volcano, right? Uh So it's like a mountain, but inside is hollow. Right. So he climbed up to the top, uh-huh. pushed him back out the outside. Oh, He okay. pushed him back the direction that he came, and he fell back down the outside of the I crater. Gotcha. He had already had the stab wounds in his lungs. His jugular vein was nicked. His temporal artery was cut. He had stab wounds all over his face and his head. And like I said, his liver and his diaphragm were both lacerated. Mm-hmm. He was bleeding from veins, arteries, and internally his mouth was full of blood, and he just felt like he was choking. And this was after he woke up. Yeah, I can't believe he woke up at all. That's... Mm. He was in terrible pain, and his lungs were both collapsed, so it was super hard to get breath. Blood was pouring out of his chest, and he thought to himself that no one would possibly find him in time, that he was going to die on that mountainside, and that no one would even find him for days afterward. 
Because he hadn't seen anyone else well, except for this guy. Yeah, that's why he chose to go that day is because nobody would be there. That's right. But what he didn't know was that while he was laying there dying in the ravine, his attacker, Benjamin Davis, after he had thrown Nicholas down the slope, had run back down the trail, still carrying the bloody knife that he had used to stab Nicholas. Davis ran toward and passed another hiker named Guy Tanaka. As he passed Guy, Davis seemed to hit Guy in the back, and Guy knew that something really bad was going on here. You know how you just get that feeling that I don't know what's happening, but it's not something good? Yeah, your goosebumps raise. Yeah, he was just, he was like, okay, something is up. It really wasn't clear to him what was happening, but Guy looked down the trail, and he saw Jerry Watanabe and Steph Hong, and he shouted to them not to approach the summit, even though he wasn't sure what was going on. He's like, just stay where you are. Something is up. Mm -hmm. The two women shouted back to him that he was bleeding. So when Davis had run past Guy, and Guy thought he hit him in the back, he'd actually stabbed him in the back. And then Davis just kept running. That's crazy to me. You hear that all the time. Oh, I didn't know I was stabbed. I thought somebody just punched me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess it's comforting a little bit. Jesus. (laughs) Well, that was like Betsy Ardsma. Mm -hmm. And she she didn't know at first that she was stabbed and nobody could see it. You don't scream. You're just like, what the hell? Yeah. So now all three of them, Jerry, Steph, and Guy, were all on high alert. And their senses were scanning. Like, okay, let me find all the information right now. Because they were super confused. We're trying to understand what was happening. Suddenly, one of them heard a human sound, garbled and incomprehensible, but enough to alert them to the fact that there was someone else nearby. They couldn't see him, but this person definitely needed help. Down in the ravine, Nicholas was trying to make noise, but every time he tried to yell, blood shot up out of his lung through the puncture wounds in his chest. Mm -hmm. But the gurgling sounds that he was able to produce had been enough. Jerry and Steph knew someone was there, but they couldn't see him. So despite knowing that someone was still around with a knife and that they had tried to kill somebody, they thought they had tried to kill Guy. They didn't even know that he had done anything to Nicholas. Mm -hmm. They continued on up to the summit to look for Nicholas because they had heard him and they knew he was there someplace. Nicholas later said that they risked their lives to save his because they didn't know what they were walking into. Yeah. Jerry found where Guy had dropped his cell phone when he was stabbed and she used it to call for help. And even though she couldn't see him, she yelled down to Nicholas that help was coming. When Nicholas didn't hear from her again after several minutes, he assumed then that Davis had come back and attacked her too. Nicholas lay in agony, just twisted, broken, barely able to catch breath, inches from the edge of another cliff for almost an hour before rescuers were able to get to him. If he had shifted at all, even to straighten out his body after his first fall, he likely would have fallen hundreds more feet and almost certainly would have died. He was awake when they had to cut a hole in his throat for a tracheostomy because his broken neck made it impossible to insert a breathing tube. He was awake as he dangled by a rope below the helicopter that carried him down the mountain to relative safety. Rescuers had carefully strapped him into a rescue basket and airlifted him to a baseball field at the base of the crater, and then by ambulance he was taken to Queen's Medical Center in Honolulu. He didn't know if he was dying. He thought he might be. What he didn't know was that the Honolulu firefighters who had gone up the crater to save him thought he was probably not going to make it. He was that bad. Since Nicholas had taken his wallet on his run up the crater, thankfully he didn't leave it in his car or something, first responders were able to reach his sister Tiffany, who called his mother to let them know what had happened to him. Their mother Kitty was in San Jose and finishing a doctor's appointment. When she answered her phone, her first question was to ask Tiffany who she was rooting for in the Super Bowl. And when Tiffany ignored the question and immediately said to her mother, Mom, Nicholas has been stabbed. You have to get over to Queens. 
Kitty fell backwards into a chair. She made travel arrangements and was on the first flight back to Oahu the next morning. Nicholas was unconscious for the first 24 hours in the hospital. Kitty arrived there and stayed there with Nicholas for the next four weeks. The trauma team at first weren't entirely truthful about the extent of his injuries and would only tell her that they were working on him and they would let her know when they knew more. So she was kind of under this fog of disinformation because they didn't want her to give up on him, Mm -hmm. but they weren't entirely sure. Yeah, I'd rather you just give me the worst blunt news and just... I would feel that way too. Prepare yourself. I just want to know what's really happening. Mm -hmm. Nicholas underwent eight surgeries over the four weeks of his hospitalization. He had lost five pints of blood. He had six stab wounds in his head, 18 total. Some of what had to be done to save him amounted, according to Nicholas, to medieval torture. He was awake, again, when he had to have a halo installed, which is a metal brace that immobilizes the head to allow his broken neck to heal. Mm -hmm. He was awake when they drilled the anchors into his skull. He had to wear that halo for six weeks. Other surgeries were performed to repair his liver, his diaphragm, his lung, and six months later, another surgery to fuse cervical vertebrae. Four times he got infections that threatened his healing. One time he got pneumonia and had to have the trach tube inserted for two weeks, during which he was unable to speak. He'd walked with a cane for months after he left the hospital. He wore a collar to support the cervical fusion that had been done, but he was determined to walk into the fire station in Pawa'a to thank the firefighters who saved him. When he walked in, they teared up to see his progress. And I teared up to hear about them tearing up. Truth told, he was unable to do much of anything for himself at first. He couldn't drive. He wasn't even allowed to sit in the front seat of a car. This took a full year to get past. He also suffered mightily from PTSD. When he was offered a service dog to assist him in his day-to-day activities, he refused it. He didn't want to receive a trained service dog that was needed more by someone coming back from the war. Because this was in 2009. He didn't want to make them wait for his benefit, but he did go and get a beagle with shaggy little ears whom he named Rapunzel for the company. The first couple of years, Nicholas was fearful of someone coming to the door. He didn't want to go anywhere. He didn't want to talk. He saw a mental health therapist weekly for three years, but he didn't want to discuss much about it aside from that. As he got better, though, he got lots of visitors, lots of emails, lots of greetings on Facebook. He spent hours during his healing process writing to people, emailing people, posting updates that let everyone know how he was doing. He was frustrated when he faced Benjamin Davis in court in 2010. Davis had been caught after stabbing Nicholas and Guy, and after he had removed all his clothing and climbed a tree, he was caught. Davis was acquitted of the two attempted murder charges by reason of insanity and was committed to the Hawaii State Hospital. Nicholas did have the chance to speak in court, although he knew that his words about how the attack had rerouted his entire life weren't going to affect the final outcome of the court session. They just allowed him to have his say. Mm -hmm. Nicholas had held back all of his emotions since the attack, and after his testimony, he finally felt free enough to express them, and he said that while it was hard to get through it, he was very glad that he did. Despite feeling like the judicial system had let him down, he still loves his country, his state, and his community. His biggest regret was that he will never be able to serve in the military, but he accepts that that is no longer his lot in life. His recovery has been beset with one challenge after another. He suffered a seizure while playing a video game and fell face first against the computer table, which again jarred his tenuously healed vertebrae. Mm. Twice he was rear-ended in car crashes that whipped his head back and forth, again threatening to injure his neck and mobility. The second crash happened just as he had stopped needing to wear the neck brace, and on the same day, 
that he was supposed to have started a new job at a restaurant. His neck hurt badly and his fingers started to tingle. He couldn't stand for more than 10 minutes after that crash. So his opportunity to start rebuilding a life outside of his studio apartment was again thwarted. Nicholas was struggling with dexterity because he had had some tendons cut all the way through. Then they had repaired them, but those are hard to regain Mm -hmm. the mobility. His mother suggested that he take up knitting to work the tendons that had been cut. He watched his sisters doing it and he decided that a little sibling rivalry might come in handy. So he decided he was going to learn to do it better than his sisters could. (laughs) His mom Kitty showed him the basics and he immediately started knitting. Constantly knitting. He started with pot holders, then he moved on to beanies and scarves and shawls. He's become so productive with his knitting that he started selling handmade products online to help with his medical bills and to earn some income. Mm -hmm. Knitting also worked to improve the condition of his hands, letting him create really beautiful works with fingers that he was at first not even able to move. He considers knitting to have played a significant role in his recovery. Nicholas had moved to Idaho and stayed with friends for a period of time, but he came back when it was announced that Davis, who was in the custody of the Hawaii State Hospital, was going to be allowed to attend Windward Community College classes. Initially, it was ruled that he would not be required to have an escort, but state officials later decided to require an escort after all. Nicholas wasn't afraid for himself, but he knew that Davis's being out in the world was going to be very stressful for his mom, mm-hmm. and he felt she had already been through so much since the attack on him. And she had. She was his caregiver. She was his chauffeur. She slept on the floor in a studio apartment that they shared, and she had used all of her savings to pay for his care and their expenses. She also had the constant emotional roller coaster of her child having to experience all of these painful surgeries and setbacks. So Kitty had been an angel to him and he was looking out for her. Mm-hmm. In 2015, Nicholas realized that if he really wanted to take advantage of his second chance in life, he needed to get off of the painkillers that he had become addicted to. He knew he was the only one who would be able to get himself out of that hole and he had to start making changes if he ever wanted to get his life back. Nicholas now tolerates the pain that he experiences. Mm -hmm. Another turning point was in 2016 when he received notice that Benjamin Davis was set to be released from custody of Hawaii State Hospital and he got fired up. He wrote out the whole story, all the gory details included to remind the state of Hawaii what Davis had done to him Mm -hmm. and on a smaller scale to Guy Tanaka. Mm -hmm. Nicholas considered this his watershed moment saying, This was a watershed moment for me because I learned the power of my voice. My experience with trauma and my refusal to stay quiet mean I am in a unique position to reach those who are hurting. So Nicholas found his voice, although again, it did not prevent Benjamin Davis from being released after having served six years in the Hawaii State Hospital. But Nicholas, now understanding his own power, had turned a corner. As he realized what he had to offer and started to come out of his self-exile, He appeared in the local news frequently, and his journey was followed by people of all walks of life. The Chancellor of the University of Hawaii was so moved by Nicholas's strength and resilience that he was offered a four-year scholarship. In 2020, at the age of 35, Nicholas graduated cum laude from the University of Hawaii, Hilo, with a BA in European history. He uses his story because he knows that people facing challenging times sometimes need to see that other people went through terrible things and made it. He is grateful for the hundreds of letters of support he has received from strangers and hugs he's gotten from people on the street. He reminds himself that what happened to him, as awful as it was, could have been even worse. And he reminds himself that there are others who do have it worse, Mm -hmm. which is why he turned down the service dog. Nicholas still has pain every single day. 
and he probably will for the rest of his life. But he said the best revenge is living. What he experienced on the crater was a nightmare, and the following years were extremely challenging and sometimes discouraging, but he's still here. In 2021, Nicholas Iwamoto was featured on a University of Hawaii virtual program called Wailao, where he shared his story. He said, I want the audience to know that hope can be found in the most hopeless situations. I want them to find a strength within they never knew existed. More than anything, I want them to know they're not alone. And I found the name of his online store. Mm-hmm. And I went to it and looked at it. The name that he gave in the last article I found from 2021, mm-hmm. that name is being used by a guy in the UK. And so it's not Nicholas's store. That guy in the UK is making beautiful stuff too, but it's not Nicholas's store. The store where he knitted stuff in. Yeah, his knit goods store. It was called Nick's Knits. Oh. But that name is being used by a guy in the UK. So I don't know what happened to Nicholas's online store. Maybe he just is busy now and doesn't have time to keep up with it. I don't know. But he is an amazing survivor. Mm -hmm. And I have a photo of him on his graduation day from the University of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And he's wearing a traditional leaf wreath on his head. Oh, okay. And it just, this photo just makes me so happy. So I'm going to put this on Instagram. Okay. So he is so strong. And humble. And humble. He's just a, he seems like an amazing guy. Mm. Of course, all these stories, you know, we don't, we're going to do stories about people that seem like douchebags. They suck, but they're still here, guys. (laughs) Yeah, we're not, not really our thing. Yeah, I mean, and and even if people weren't perfect to -hmm. begin with, they, they seem to find a renewed purpose after they go through these horrible things. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the reason I think that they re- they speak to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy. He got so lucky that other people happened to come up right behind him. Yeah, because he hadn't seen anyone else that day. I mean, yeah. I mean, they might have found him later on, but... Well, that's what he was saying. I don't know if anyone even knew he was going up there to run. Yeah. They probably would have eventually found his car in the parking lot and said, oh, this guy must be here somewhere. Let's get a helicopter out there or something. Yeah, but he was right. Where he fell, unless someone knew to look for him there, there's no way they were just going to run across him. Mm -hmm. So he was super unlucky to run across Benjamin Davis, but he was super lucky that the sisters and Guy Tanaka were there that day too. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an awesome story. And now we're in Hawaii. Yeah, now we're in Hawaii. Where did so, you say it was? was Oahu. It Oahu? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was episode 40. I think we are probably done. Yeah. You got, it's as good as it's going to get. You did your good of the day. I did my good deed for the week. You didn't punt puss across the floor today, even though she really deserved it. I really wanted to, though. Yeah, me too. Still kind of do. Okay, so guys, we've been getting some new reviews. Thank you very much for those. Mm-hmm. And we have been getting some nice five-star ratings. Mm-hmm. And we appreciate that every time you do that for us. We are grateful. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at True Crime BNB. And you can feel free to email us at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. Yes, and I think that's it. Well, we'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye, Crime family. Crime fam. I haven't called you that in a while. Yeah. I want you to forget. Yeah. (laughs) Don't forget where you belong. (laughs) You're ours. (laughs) Bye. Bye. It wasn't milk. Yeah, it wasn't milk. Did you hit play? I did. Okay. Well, (laughs) at least it wasn't milk. (laughs) kind of the lore and the truth behind what happened.
what happened in a building. Come okay, here. let's just come here. I feel left out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk to me. He's going to do a straight up cartwheel under her lap. She's still purring too. Sorry about this. <laughs> cartwheel cat. Okay. <laughs> Can you imagine if we breathe like that? <laughs> I do when I sleep. I call it snoring. Are you done? Yeah, Should we maybe just start just all straight. over. Curious what the What's lure. that all about? Lure in that one. the lure? <laughs> What's the lure? I want to go. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was so grossed out. <laughs> <laughs> to the story, I just gave you the bulletin, bullet points here. What was the Civil War? <laughs> I don't even know. Did, I think it ended. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was your cheese stick. <laughs> Cheese sticks are not supposed to crunch. But how long was it sitting in your cheek? Like, <laughs> like, like a little squirrel with a cheese stick crammed inside there. My mouth's a little bit watery. Blah, blah, blah. Crunch. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> no laughing. Kind of like riding the MARTA train downtown or to the airport. Yeah. There's usually a guy. Hopefully they don't have a knife. Just don't make eye contact. Yeah, they don't have a knife. They always have a Bible. So despite watery mouth, stop it. <laughs> I know, it's upsetting, Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, don't cry. <sighs> yeah, let me pick her up real fast. I got her by the back leg and she won't let me. Okay. <laughs> That's how she ended up upside down. <laughs> Their mother, Kitty, was in San Jose. Their mother. <laughs> you just say the word Kitty, so. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> he had lost five punts. Five punts. To fuse vertical. Cert- vertical. <laughs> what? <laughs> vertical. <laughs> Did you say vertical sort of ray? Is that what you were gonna say? <laughs> Holy crap. Sounds like a Harry Potter spell. And after he had removed all his clothing and climbed a tree. <sighs> what the hell? I don't know. It's up there. Do you think she's pooping? No, I think she wants to play. She's trying to get us to chase her. That's what she does when she wants me to chase her. Alright, let me say it. get this sentence while she's shut up. Okay. He knew he was the old... Shut up! Stop it! Okay, I'm pulling a mommy. <laughs> it was. She was upside down again. In 2020, at the age of 35, Nicholas graduated cum laude from the University of Hawaii. I still can't fucking do it. I still can't do it. You might have to read it. Okay, I can. I got one more. One more paragraph. Okay. Woo, one more. You got this. <laughs> Which is equally terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> please, please shut up or go away. 